Hello and welcome to the Still Space Podcast. I'm your host, Executive Coach Mary Lee Gannon, where my guests and I share fun and simple strategies to manage yourself so that you can show up the way you want in work relationships in life and not default to past behaviors that leave you disappointed. The Still Space is where you learn to take an intentional moment to challenge habitual assumptions that hold you back with enlightened truths that boost your genius. We transform drama, resentment, doubt, unmet expectations, and self-sabotage to executive presence, self-control, deep sleep, healthy choices, and more connection with people who matter while it still matters. It's time. I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com, where you can also learn more about working with me. Are you tired of chasing success and feeling exhausted and disappointed? If so, join me in the Mindful Leader Satisfied Life Circle, where you'll learn how to show up with executive presence, develop a sought-after leadership identity, and advance at the executive level without it costing you well-being or close relationships. This is for you if you feel disrespected, ineffective, and frustrated about not being recognized for your value, are in a new role, or reaching for something big and notice unresolved issues keep you from being effective. Can't stop thinking, saying, or doing something that doesn't serve you, your career, or your personal life? Are judged by age bias? Have been passed over for promotion or hire? Have stopped dreaming big and believing you can have it? The Mindful Leader Satisfied Life Coaching Circle helps you change things that you don't like about your career and life by helping you honestly assess where you are now with all the outside factors, you know, the bureaucracy, corporate politics, personal agendas, posturing, relationship drama, and the internal factors like doubt, fear, anger, frustration, expectations, assumptions, and create a different outcome. Every day you have lots of thoughts and feelings. Take action on those and generate results, creating the life you're presently living. If we change just one of those things, the way you think about your day, your career, your abilities, the people in your life, anxiety over the past or the future or right now, the outcome is different. I know a little bit about progress. I went quickly from welfare to CEO of a $33 million organization after a very difficult divorce. And I found love, too. Success is freedom, not more hours. This is for you if you want to get off the treadmill to nowhere and feel respected and taken seriously with high emotional intelligence. Be the quickly sought after and trusted choice for any team, project, leadership, promotion, or hire. If you want to earn more, stop wasting time on busy work like hiring resume writers, getting another degree, going to conferences, relying on self-help books, ruminating, browsing jobs boards, blaming, complaining. Have self-control in your life choices, eating, exercise, sleep, relationships. No more snacking down your disappointments. You want to be included and close to the people who matter while it still matters. You'll get career information you have never heard before for fast 
track advancement, leadership impact plan that is personal to you, tools to maintain your executive presence and value proposition, a well-being planner mailed to your home, as well as personal coaching for your personal situation. All you have to do is go over to maryleegannon.com, click on coaching, and learn more about Mindful Leader Satisfied Life, and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, friend. And welcome to episode 43 of the Still Space podcast, The Resilience of Dreams, A Career Story. Today I'm going to share with you my dreams and how those dreams seemingly got broken and the resilience of dreams and teach you how you can also find that same resilience for your dreams. I ask you to close your eyes for just a minute And think of the dreams you had as a child. Were they that you could fly, that you could be strong? We had all had dreams as children. And then fast forward a little bit into maybe your high school years. What were your dreams then to get into a college of choice, to be accepted by the quote in group, the populars? And then fast forward to when you graduated from college. What were your dreams then? To find a dream job, to live in a great city, maybe to find a spouse. The point of this exercise is to show you that you've already abandoned past dreams and developed new ones. Without even noticing it, you already have a dream resilience. And sometimes we get married to these dreams and we don't know how to transition out of them, albeit you've already seen the example of how you have already transitioned out of dreams. But when we expect, expectations are different than dreaming. Expectations are when we've married ourselves to an outcome and something bad happens. We get laid off from work, we our marriage falls apart, our friendship with somebody that we really valued falls apart, we have to relocate, we're terminated from a job. These things happen. These are situations that happen to us and they're so unexpected that immediately all we feel is rejection, hurt, let down. And I think we have to honor those feelings. But there is already a resilience in you that knows how to move past them. The best way that I can illustrate this to you is to tell you a story. And the story is my story, my career trajectory from welfare to CEO, but from the perspective of dreams. I went to high school and my only dream was to live at the beach and be a stay-at-home mother. I had absolutely no career aspirations. I was happy to go to college. I was happy to work after college, but I wanted to be a family person with that being my only priority. And I went to a college that my parents wanted me to go to, even though I wanted to go into a creative realm. They told me, no, you need to go into the medical profession. That way you'll always have a job and you can go back to work after you have your children. Well, I really 
did want to do something more in line with what I valued, something like writing or photography. My parents saw that as frivolous, and I didn't pursue that in college, and it's sort of ironic that years later I ended up doing a lot of writing. But in any event, I followed their advice, as many people do, and I got a degree in an allied health profession, and when I graduated from college... I took a job in the Houston Medical Center. Now, keep in mind, I still have this goal of I want to live at the beach, which is why I took a job in Houston, because it was the closest job offer I had to the beach. I had no idea how much the beaches of Galveston were not my idea of the beach. There were oil rigs just offshore, so there was oil all over the water, tar all over the beach and so my dreams of living at the beach were sort of diminishing and I found very quickly that I knew that Houston was not where I wanted to spend the rest of my life but I made a goal that I would live there for two years and I can remember thinking oh my gosh please don't let me meet my future husband here where I would have to live here for the rest of my life even though Houston is a great town in and of itself, but it didn't meet my criteria of living at the beach. So again, I'm still having this dream of being a stay-at-home mom, living at the beach, having a nice life. Well, two years to the day that I moved there, I moved back to Pittsburgh. I was happy to come home, and I remember that 1,500-mile ride back from Houston to Pittsburgh with a trailer hitched to the back of my Pontiac Sunbird and my dog Scruffy, a Shih Tzu, on a leash tied around my leg because she kept trying to jump out the window the whole ride home, and I had the windows down because it was hot. And I can remember driving. A friend was going with me in her car because she was on her way back to Ohio to visit her parents. And we stopped in White House, Tennessee on a Saturday night in a truck stop. Three young women in their 20s in a truck stop on a Saturday night. And we thought we could just spend the night in our cars. And as we were putting gas in our car, the attendant showed me that in the back of the car, the bumper of my car was pulling away because the trailer I was pulling was so heavy it had pulled the bumper off the car so I had we had to spend the night there and and get somebody to work on it overnight and that's when he told us I don't think three young ladies should be spending the night in their car in White House Tennessee on a Saturday night so we went and stayed in this local hotel I'd never been in a hotel where the towels were all different colors and the bed was extremely wobbly, and I knew when the hotelier said, now, do you want to stay the whole night, or do you just want to stay a few hours? I thought, oh, boy, (laughs) we are in for a real experience here in White House, Tennessee. So it was a great memory. We had a lot of fun there, and then we got up the next day, and I kept driving, drove that trailer all the way back to Pittsburgh. One of my fondest memories is coming around the corner to my house. And this was before we had cell phones. My father must have been sitting on the porch for hours waiting for me. And as soon as that car came around the, the corner, he ran down the steps and halfway down the street to meet me in the middle of the road. And it was just a, a wonderful time to be back. So at this point, my dreams are pretty much the same. I'm thinking I'm going to still 
find somebody and get married, get another job in a medical practice in Pittsburgh, which I did. And I met somebody and I got married. I had been living with my parents at the time, saving my money. And I'm now married. And when I had my first child, I stopped working in the medical practice. I had a degree in ophthalmic dispensing and I worked uh, fitting contact lenses pre and post corneal transplants. It was a very specific non-transferable skill. This is why I work so closely with my clients on having transferable skills. I had a degree in something that I could not use in any other way. It was a mistake when I went into it, uh, but I, I don't look back. I, I figured this is where I am. How do I move forward? So I'm married. I have my first child. I stop working and find out very quickly that I don't have with this man who is my husband a lot of autonomy. The money was controlled. I was given money weekly. I didn't have access to a checking account. I didn't have access to a credit card, which wasn't an issue when I was working because I had all of that. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing there's contention when I'm trying to do what normal people have in a very healthy marriage. Uh, there wasn't reciprocity. And so um, still my life was somewhat comfortable, but I'm starting to realize there's a lot of control going on here. But still, my goal was to be a stay-at-home mom and live near the beach someday. And so I looked past my dreams, thinking that I could endure what was not a healthy situation because I'm resilient, right? So I have three more children and the marriage is absolutely unpalatable at that point. And I think it's really important to understand that there's a difference between abandoning your dreams and being resilient and setting new ones. I lived a very long time in denial. Not a healthy place to be. I just kept thinking, I knew what was going on, but I thought that I could accept it. I thought that I could deal with it because I wanted to hold my family together. And that was wrong because I was denying myself in this process. I was looking past my own soul and I began to feel like a piece of me was dying off every day. And when I could not see any light at the end of the tunnel, I filed for divorce as a leap of faith and I was not at all prepared for the avalanche that befell me. I had co-signed loans for my husband's business and as soon as I filed for divorce he placed those loans in jeopardy by putting his business in bankruptcy and all of those loans came to be due and then all of our marital property including our home which was just a few years from being paid off because we took a very short mortgage and all of our marital assets went down to the business and he opened up the business a week later under a new name with all the inventory equipment and buildings that uh, straw company that he was part of bought out of the bankruptcy. And there my children and I are on welfare, food stamps, and medical assistance, homeless without an automobile after having been living the country club life. That was a rude awakening. At that point in my life, I had spent so much time and so much energy and every last penny I had chasing him through the courts. And you can't give a self-employed man a conscience through the court system. It's just not set up for that. 
because self-employed people write their own books. They pay themselves a certain amount and then they deduct much of their lifestyle sometimes off of the business. And as I look back now, I, I fought too heavily, much too long to try and win, 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 because that's what divorce sets you up to do. And the only winners are the lawyers, because they don't work for you. They work for themselves. So they'll go to court happily over anything that you want to go to court over instead of picking up the phone and trying to work it out with the other lawyer, because that's how they get paid. That's their business model. So if you're going through a divorce or contemplating a divorce, my best piece of advice is to is to be the driving party in your divorce. Don't allow your lawyer to do that. Make it very clear that you want to go to court as least often as possible. You don't want to go to motions court over everything. You want the lawyers to work it out. Now, if you have a contentious divorce, that makes it difficult. And in my case, because I was not the one controlling the money, the divorce became a war against who has more money. And I will tell you with unequivocal certainty that whoever has more money is going to win the divorce because they're going to be able to afford the lawyers. I didn't know this going into it. I believed life was fair and that everybody wants what's fair for their children. And I was a dreamer. Dreams still are a good thing only when we see them up against reality. So you have your dreams, but don't let that deny reality. And I could see reality staring me right in the face when the sheriff showed up and put a sheriff's sale notice on my home while my children were playing right there. And I just tore it off and I threw it into the garbage can. And I said to myself, at this point, I am done with the courts. No lawyer would represent me because I didn't have any money. So the last time I went to court, I represented myself. This was when my husband at the time was appealing a $269 a week child support and alimony award for five of us. And it's the only time I ever won. I actually won. <laughs> he didn't win that appeal and I mean, but what do I win? You know, I'm still impoverished. I still don't have enough to support my family. But it gave me a little bit of insight into, hey, I have power here. I wasted a lot of money on lawyers who did not produce what I needed for my family. And I actually stood up in court against a $450 an hour lawyer and won. Okay, what else can I do? And when you take steps, when you break out of that zone of protection and safety, your confidence builds. All of the research shows that confidence grows by taking action. But we're very familiar with what I call the C principle, S standing for story. We have these stories that we tell ourselves based on situations. And then there are emotions that follow those stories. And some of my stories were, oh, I'll never meet anybody. My children will never go to college. All of this despair was leading to a lot of pain and agony. The emotions I was feeling was rejection, betrayal, hurt, disappointment, frustration. And the action that followed is I played small. I let lawyers drive the process, sucking every penny I had down the tube. I let myself believe that there wasn't going to be a great future for us. All of this was not serving me or my family. 
But when I adopted a new thought based on taking a risk and some action, that C principle, S-E-A, story, emotion, A for action, the story changed. The story changed to maybe I can get my act together here. Instead of expecting him to support these children, it's better for me to spend my own time and energy in creating an autonomous life for us. And the emotion that followed that was empowerment. And the action that followed that, I'm going to show you through the rest of the story, was risk-taking, self-esteem, confidence. So what happened was I started meeting and networking with people and I put aside the emotion of shame because there had been a lot of shame associated with living in the most affluent suburb of my town and then losing my house in sheriff's sale, not having an automobile, being homeless, trying to find a, a little home to move back into so that my children could go back to their schools, living with my parents for a couple weeks, trying to get a car without any credit because, of course, now my credit is ruined because those loans that I had co-signed with my ex-husband were defaulted on for his business. But I, I figured it out. I had angels that helped me along the way, co-signed loans for my car. I was able to get a, a home. I put the home you know, my parents bought the home at first and then I bought it off of them after uh, the divorce was settled so that it wouldn't also go down to the creditors. And I had a lot of risk-taking with confidence and angels because I allowed for that help. I allowed people to help me by putting the shame aside, by saying, hey, this is where I am. I'm moving forward. Here's my plan. Will you help me? That's a far cry different than nobody's helping me. Will you please help me? I don't know what to do. I was not a victim. When I played victim, I was despairing, upset, worried. The anxiety increased. So I changed that CSEA line to hey, I can do this is the story. The emotion is empowerment and the action is put it in front of me. I'll get it done here's what ended up happening. I had done a lot of volunteer writing for organizations and I saw an ad in the paper that the local largest metropolitan newspaper in my town was looking for a freelance writer. So I took clips of things that I had written for other organizations and I sent them in. What did I have to lose? I didn't have a journalism degree. I had never written for a major publication, but I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And they called me and I went in for an interview and I remember sitting on this little chair next to this editor's desk and having him tell me, you know, Mary Lee, we have Ivy League journalists in this room that can't write the way people can understand them. You write like you're having a conversation around the dining room table. I'll never forget that. That's all I needed to hear. I said, okay. He said, we're going to give you some assignments. I said, okay. And now all of a sudden I'm writing for the newspaper and my byline is appearing in the newspaper and people are starting to call me for other work. Will you do public relations for us? And I ended up being the public relations director of a public school district. They gave me a contract. I did work for them and a teacher came to me one day and said, you're a really good writer. We need a grant for special education for our uh, students to have some school in the summer. Will you 
consider writing that. Now, that wasn't part of my contract. I knew that I wasn't going to get paid for it, but I had a child with special needs and I knew how she regressed during the summer. And I said yes, because it gave me the opportunity to learn a new skill. I wrote a grant. I didn't have any clue what I was doing. I researched every funding organization in town and I called them. And I'm telling you, I must have made 50, at least 50 phone calls. Is this something you would fund? Is this something you would fund? Because I wasn't afraid to hear no. When we can get over our fear of rejection, it's amazing what we can accomplish. And eventually, one of the funders said to me, no, we don't fund this, but this organization does. Why don't you call them? So I called them. I set up a meeting. I scripted the whole thing, what I was going to say when I got there. I took the superintendent. I took the teacher. And then I realized very quickly when we got there, they weren't at all interested in what I had to say. They only wanted to hear from the superintendent and the teacher who I had not prepared. Fortunately, because these are orators, they're educators by nature, they picked up the ball, ran with it, and we got the grant. Learning lesson there. Next time, I'll make sure that who I'm taking with me can carry the weight because they really aren't interested in what the fundraiser has to say. Was I afraid and intimidated going into these meetings and trying these things? I have to tell you, honestly... I don't think so. I think I was numb. I'm not proud of not being afraid. I think I was numb. And that is even more scary than being afraid. Because when you are immune to your emotions, when you're not feeling any negative emotions because you've armored up so much to avoid them, you're also not feeling any joyous emotions happiness, fulfillment, excitement, relatability. I wasn't feeling at all. And that numbness and emptiness shuts down your relatability, makes you not hireable, not likable when you get there, no matter how many skills you have. If you can't rally a team, it's very difficult for you to succeed. I saw this showing up in my relationship with my children. I felt detached. I felt almost unworthy to enjoy them. They would ask me, oh, mom, come and do this. And I was always too busy with work because I felt I was on that treadmill to know where I have to earn a living. I have to earn a living. I had multiple streams of income. I was the executive director of a trade association while I was also writing for the newspaper and a PR director of a public school district. All of these were independent contracts that I was keeping because childcare for four people was cost prohibitive. I also had a child with a disability who needed in-home care. So I was busy. I was tired, yet I was numb and detached. We're going to talk about in a minute how to unravel that and the cost of what happens when you don't. One of the independent roles I had was a salesperson for advertising specialties. Again, another angel took me under his wings and taught me the art of sales. I started to realize it wasn't always so much the price point. It was the relationship between people. And that helped me later in my fundraising career as well. Sales was hard for me because I needed to be out of the house so much and I still had a three-year-old at home. I had a baby at home and it just wasn't working out. So I didn't last long in that industry, but I did end up as the executive director of the trade association for that industry. And that's where I taught myself new skills. 
So if you're in a what I call meanwhile time where you have some time on your hands, maybe you've been laid off, but you want to learn something, go ahead and do it because it just makes you more marketable. In that role of the D of the trade association, I realized if I can bring in more money, I'm going to make more money. How do I get more people to attend this trade show so that there will be more money in the organization to pay me? And I taught myself how to write databases, how to keep data, how to parse it, how to divide it, how to track it. I was really good at it and I tripled the income of the association and they paid me a lot more. And now I'm starting to understand my power where my signature strengths are. And I work on this very closely with my clients because if you don't know what your signature strengths are, you can't play to them and you can't speak to them. So people will ask me, well, what are you good at, Mary Lee? I'm very good at discernment. I'm very good at strategy and I'm very good with influence. These are things that I know about myself and then I can demonstrate how I've used them. Some of the stories that I'm telling you today are the stories that I use when people ask that. Recruiters call me. I haven't looked for a job in a very long time. I'm very happy in the role that I am. I'm the president of a hospital foundation where I'm honored to have the confidence of my board. But how did I get there? I was working all of these independent contract jobs, and when my three-year-old son went to kindergarten, the divorce was finalized, and I was attributed to carry the health insurance for the children because on paper my husband was playing the I'm poor, your honor, and uh, I just was tired chasing him. So I now had to cover the health insurance, which meant that I needed to get a job because the cost of health insurance for the five of us was prohibitive. So a friend of mine called me one day and said, we know about an open position for the president of a hospital foundation. It was a small hospital on the other side of town from where I lived. And we're going to put you up for that. And I said, oh, I really appreciate your confidence. And I went and I met with the president of the hospital. And I was able to demonstrate to him how much money I had fundraised as a volunteer. Remember when I volunteered to raise money for the school district and raising for the children with special needs to have a summer school program? I demonstrated that, 68000 there, and then they also asked me to help them get lights for their athletic field from the state, and I was able to get 200000 for that, and I showed him those examples, and he said, you raised more than my whole department did last year. You have the job. I said, oh, okay, great, thank you. And then from the interview, I went to the bookstore and bought fundraising for dummies because I didn't have a clue how I was going to do that job. Now, did I have some fear associated with that? Not as much, because remember, I'm still in the numb stage. I'm still in the empty stage, not feeling a whole lot of fulfillment, grateful that I have this job, but I'm still numb. So I'm willing to try things. I get there for my first day, and the president said, can I have your budget? And I had no idea how to create that, so I walked down the hall to the communications director, and I said, can you show me your budget? Oh, yeah, postage. I'll need some of that. I'll need printing and advertising and so I put together a budget we did a very good job there and I made the city's book of lists for our events and then I started to think about okay there's no career ladder here for me and when you're setting the dreams for your career make sure you see that there's somewhere for you to go from the position that you're going to take 
You can say that to the hiring manager. Where do you see someone in this position in three years, in five years, in 10 years? And allow them to answer that because you don't want to go into a dead end role. You want to go into an organization that sees you as someone of value that they want to entice to stay there by providing career ladder opportunities for you. So I saw an open role in another hospital, a bigger role, and I I decided, no, I don't think I'm going to apply for that. And then I saw it again the next month and I said, okay, I think I am going to apply for that. And I call up the office first before blindly sending in a resume. And I find out that the position has been closed. They have enough applicants. So I think about that. Okay, so this, they won't take any more applications. Who does the success of this role matter most to? That's the president of the hospital, not who's ever in charge of fundraising for the six hospitals in this network. And I called the president's office of that hospital, and I knew he hadn't interviewed anybody at that point, and I said to his assistant, and I think that we have to be very genuine and connected to people and create relationships. I created a relationship with her. I still remember her name. We became very good friends. I said, Joni, I realize that you're no longer taking applications for this position, and and I'm not asking for an exception. I'm just asking to speak with the hospital president because I'm doing the role that you have open right now, and I'm happy to give him insight into what might be helpful for him what to look for, what not to look for, what not to hire for, what to hire for, because I realized you haven't had somebody in this role in a long time. And she went to him and she advocated for me and we had a call. He brought me in for an interview. I met the chairman of the board and I was hired. I was very succinct about my position. You know the question, tell me a little bit about yourself. I could have complained about my situation. If you complain about anything on a job interview, you will not be the lead candidate because they're afraid you're going to complain about them and be difficult at work. All I said was this, at this point in my life, I've found myself to be the sole provider of four children. And I'm looking for a position where I can lead and do that really well based on the past accomplishments that I have, putting my skills to use for you. And then I went into examples of that. I ended up getting that job and doing really well in it. It was on the heels of the largest hospital bankruptcy in U.S. history. I raised $10.4 million there and recruiters were calling me all the time. One called me one day about a role that was three miles from my house I was offered the position, and when I resigned, my board was very sad to see me go, and they countered so that I would stay, and then the other organization countered so that I would come to them. But I felt, because I had built this board on the heels of that bankruptcy, that I owed it to them to finish a campaign that we were in. And when it had concluded, the same role became open again because who they hired was not working out. And they offered that job to me again, and this time I took it. And it's the job I'm in today, and I very much appreciate the confidence of my board of directors. So I want to pause here and talk a little bit about transferable skills. Transferable skills are skills that you have right now that can be applied to another profession. They fall into the area of organization of information, communications, and operating of systems and equipment. 
Regarding organization of information, think of your computer files. Could somebody sit down at your computer, open it up, and look at the files and find just about everything that they need to do your job? If so, you're very organized and you have great transferable skills in that area. Communication-wise, are you someone who can negotiate? Are you good at customer service? Are you good at relatability? At writing, at creating consensus. These are transferable skills. And the challenge for you is to look at your resume, tease out when you have used those transferable skills to accomplish something measurable, either increased something a certain percentage or decreased it a certain percentage or saved money or whatever it is, retained employees. We have to have measurable things in our tool belt because when you're applying for a role, those are the people that rise out of the slush pile. Also, we need to know how to put those transferable skills into our resumes and cover letters, mirroring the language that are in job descriptions so that you can clear the artificial intelligence scrubs that are the first pieces of intel that go through your resume before it even gets to a human being. Additionally, anytime you leave a position, ask the people that are there that you've worked with if they will give you a letter of reference give them bullets to put in it off of your measurable key accomplishment list to make it easy for them and give them two weeks to say, I would love a letter of reference from you. I valued our time together. I ask that you get that to me two weeks from now and then circle back with them and, and make sure that you secure that and give them a big thank you and send them a note and, and really appreciate them and allow them to feel that appreciation these letters of reference will stay with you. They are, of course, addressed to whom it may concern. They will stay with you throughout your career, and you may need to pull them out again in the future. And now before we close today, I want to bring this full circle by closing the loop on the numbness and the emptiness that comes from armoring up and soldiering on. It made me not find love I was not able to connect with people, romantic love. I was detached from the fulfillment I had from the love of my own children. I was an arm's length away from everything that mattered to me, and I was not drawing it closer. I was pushing it away. And how did I rid myself of that numbness, that emptiness? That's when I found mindfulness. That's when I started watching, observing, learning, conferences, studying people that are fulfilled and different ways of life and staying in the moment, practicing mindful daily practices that keep you in the moment is the single best thing I feel that research supports that you can do to become more intimate with yourself and more intimate with people that you care about. How do we do that? By practicing it. And when you're practicing it, it may seem silly until you start to realize over time that you are in charge of your thoughts instead of your thoughts being in charge of you. We talked about the C principle, story followed by emotion followed by action. How do you control what those emotions are. Because if you're feeling strong emotions, you're suffering. If you're angry, if you're resentful, if you're feeling small, if you're feeling unappreciated, frustrated, 
you're not mindful. You're not in the moment. You're not observing from a third party perspective. That's what mindfulness is. It's observing your life from a third party perspective without judgment, staying in the moment without judgment. And how do we build that? meditation, prayer, reading a daily devotional, going for a mindful walk where you're following your footsteps, you're looking at the people around you, thinking of them, you're not regurgitating in your head a situation that you're upset about, you're noticing the weight of your feet as you're walking, you're noticing the breeze, you see people, you're wondering what they're thinking, who planted those flowers in that pot, The observation of the surroundings around you keeps you in the moment. And you finally do this long enough and repeatedly enough that now you have a little more self-awareness, which gives you the ability to self-regulate. And when you notice there might be a difficult emotion arising within you, something like, I can't believe this is happening. This is so unfair. You say to yourself, oh, deep breath. I notice resentment is here, which is a far cry different than I'm so angry. Why does this just keep happening to me? Oh, I notice there's resentment here. Wonder what's behind that. Yeah, sometimes I do this. Deep breath. I am well. I'm together. I know that I can handle this. And you get back to a more calm emotion. And then your actions are different. You'll take risks. You're more warm to people. You connect with people. You have more humility. You allow them to see. You shed shame for vulnerability. Yeah, I'm feeling a little vulnerable here. Not, I'm going to armor up. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to show that I have some fear about this. You might even say to people, you know, I am a little apprehensive about this. Being able to say that is human. That's the human experience. You know, when I started dating, I started to attract men who wanted someone who was going to handle everything, be the leader, make all the decisions. And that isn't what I wanted in a partner. I wanted to find a man who was finally going to alleviate some of that for me. I was tired of doing that, but I had to be a little softer. And I think as women, we try so hard in a male-led world to compete at the table with the male persona that sometimes we lose sight of being the girl, of just being who we are. And as we become more familiar with that persona, and I see this in my clients, they're wondering why they're feeling empty and numb and not satisfied because they've tried so hard to compete at a table where they haven't used their biggest strengths. They've tried to use strengths of other people, and it's not authentic to them. And in finally finding my vulnerability, I also found love. And I'm so grateful to have taken the risks, to have not had to be perfect. I can remember my first date with my husband. I was afraid of something that was going on at work, and I talked to him about it, and the whole night he spent helping me figure out what to do. Not talking about himself, helping me. And of course, I knew that night that that was the man that I wanted to marry. And so as we close out today, don't deny your dreams. Realize that your dreams are already resilient. You've already transitioned from one dream to another to another. 
and you're okay. Just because the dream didn't come true, you've moved on, you've created new dreams, you never learned to fly, you may not have gotten into the school that you really wanted to go to, and look what's happened anyway. It's not a but this happened, it's and this happened. Let dreams and happiness and love find you by putting that armor down, by allowing yourself to be vulnerable, by being smart about your career track, understanding your transferable skills, defining them, writing down what you've measurably accomplished using them. It's been an honor to be with you today. And I hope you find yourself dreaming big, big blue sky big. I'm glad you were with me today, and I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com, where you can also learn more about working with me.